0: Hello, and welcome to Integration ICT, the battle for school integration in Wichita, Kansas. My name is Andrew McCoskey. I teach in Wichita. I was born in Wichita. I went to school in Wichita. And when I had to decide what topic I would talk about, what topic I would research, what topic I would write about for my master's thesis, um, I, I had no choice but to do something local to highlight something for my city that I deeply think has been under-remembered and underrepresented. And for those reasons, I'll be looking at Wichita and the schools that raised me, uh, the schools that cash my paycheck every month, um, and the difficult history that comes along with Wichita's schools and racial discrimination, racial segregation, um, and eventually, thanks to activists and tireless efforts of, of the community, integration. Hope you stay tuned and welcome again to Integration ICT, the battle for school integration in Wichita, Kansas. A history teacher podcast. It's always hard to know where to start a story, particularly when it's a story that you have so much invested in, so much you care about personally. Um, and, and for me, as a guy who who loves history and and loves my city. Um, talking about it. Uh, is, it's is—it's—it's hard to know where to begin. There's so much to say. Um, but I, I think it's important to understand when we look at the story of, of school integration in Wichita, that Black people, um, which of course are the people who were largely segregated along with other groups um, for for much of, of, of Wichita's history, um, Black people have been foundational to development of wichita and to the development of of kansas um kansas for those of you who who maybe don't don't live there don't know uh maybe you haven't driven through uh certainly if you've been on a on a flight across the u.s you have probably passed through kansas at some point um kansas is dead set in the center of the heartland of the continental united states um and it really has been caught politically and socially in the middle throughout its history. Um, It was the first battleground of what would become the American civil war. Bleeding Kansas, as they called it, was a symptom of the nation's most violent and longstanding disease. Uh, The wound of, of chattel slavery that had endured from the colonial period that really at each interval of America's past threatened to be lethal. Kansas has ever been proud of, of what I call its free stateness. Um, I grew up to stories of Kansas Jayhawkers, John Brown, Quantrell, and his Raiders. Um, when I was in middle school, I fell in love with the Wild West tales of cattle drives, Wyatt Earp, and Buffalo soldiers. Um, far away from these myths that have kind of dominated popular memory of Kansas, Kansas has represented opportunity to all who have dared to enter its prairies. For this reason, Kansas and Wichita, as its most populous city, um, have always been a shining beacon for repressed groups, for minority groups, for black Americans. Um, The largest group of black Americans that came to Kansas, the Exodusters, um, they came fleeing domestic terrorism and fleeing upheaval. Um leaving the American South um, after the failure of of Reconstruction. They were called Exodusters for the, the brave exodus they undertook. And these Black families settled in cities like Wichita. They settled in all Black colonies like Dunlap or Nicodemus, and they very quickly became key parts of of Wichita, my home city. The Black community in Wichita would grow alongside the white population, um, and they were integrated until the 1890s. In the 1890s, the contagion of of what we call Jim Crow laws or black code laws um, spread from, from the American South into Kansas. And it resulted in the social and economic isolation of black Wichitans into the northeastern wing of the city. Now, I don't know where you live. I don't know where you're listening to this at. Um, but in whatever area you live, particularly if you're in a, in a city in the United States, there is likely an area that, um, is kind of known colloquially as like the minority part of the city. You know, maybe it's specific to a, uh, a group I think of, you know, Chinatown and, and like New York city, um, or, or little Italy, um, Wichita has a, a wing that is known for being very black you know uh, when I was a kid growing up we called it the quote unquote ghetto um and I can't say I'm proud of, of giving it that negative term but um, you know we tend to tend to repeat what we hear and and I I certainly was part of that at, at one point or another despite being race racially isolated in this northwestern wing of, of Wichita um, there's no legal reason for it. Um, in 1874, um, the state of Kansas actually passed a a ban on on racial discrimination, um, but essentially it was unenforced, um, and the actual writing of it was was very hard to implement in practice, and and wasn't implemented in in very many cases. Um, because of that, you see Jim Crow tendencies seep into Kansas even if they're not on the books, even if they're not uh, enumerated. Um, Wichita would long operate as a dual city for white and non-white residents, um, including both schools, public facilities, um, businesses. Um, From 1906 to 1953, um, Wichita's schools were legally segregated, um, and then from 1953 to 1971, they were what we call de facto segregated, meaning that there wasn't a, a law uh, separating, you know, ethnicities of kids, but effectively, they were still separated. Um, this was encouraged by Wichita's tightly enforced residential segregation, Um and because of that, Wichita would essentially isolate racially its children um, long after Brown versus Board of Education, 1954, which said, you can't do that. Separate is inherently not equal. Instead of the deliberate speed required in the second of the Brown decisions, Wichita's boards of, Board of Education would move school boundaries with the ebbs and flows of the city's population to in all practicality keep the schools racially segregated, primarily using strategies of school choice and neighborhood schools. That was a popular reaction to federal mandated integration in the American South. Um, As seen in other major cities around the United States, um, true efforts to integrate Wichita racially only occurred when local activism combined with federal oversight to call for funding to be withheld, um, encouraging the city's Board of Education to finally do um, what they should have done, you know, decades before. This historical narrative has received little local attention, and in a state that's so proud of its heritage, and in a city that really holds on to its, um, its history in the civil rights movement, I believe this story deserves to be better documented. Um, here's my thesis for this paper and my thesis for, um, this episode and and the series that you're going to be listening to. The public schools of Wichita, Kansas remained largely segregated due to Board of Education policies that upheld and enabled de facto segregation until the early 1970s, when local activists successfully rallied to overturn such policies. Chapter 1. Ho for Kansas Ho for Kansas is what one Nashville real estate flyer decreed on March 18, 1878 for black Americans interested in quote homes in the Southwestern lands of America in quote, Kansas represented a land of new beginnings for many black communities around the United States. And thanks to the many available tracts of farmland an 1874, statewide anti-discrimination law, um, and the state's history as a free state during the American civil war, um, many black migrants came to Wichita and came to Kansas with a lot of hope. Um, A uh, Topeka Commonwealth uh, article um, epitomized uh, more clearly in 1879, writing the idea of Kansas, which to the colored man of America is the greatest and the freest of all in the union. Um, A flyer and poem in the New West Monthly in 1889 wrote a school for every child, a field for every laborer, respect that sees every man a neighbor, the richest soil a farmer ever saw and equal rights before the law. I think it's important to read what the people were talking about would have seen and would have interpreted and would have acted upon. And for Black people in this period, after the failure of Reconstruction, after their very recent emancipation, um, these flyers represented true hope and true opportunity. Um, During this pre, or excuse me, not pre, uh, post Reconstruction period, Black Americans would flock to Wichita in higher rates than the rest of the state. Um, excluding the all-black colonies uh, like Dunlap and Nicodemus, if you're from Kansas or from the Midwest and you're going to be around that part of the state, I'd encourage you to swing by. Um, I've never been, but I hope to go soon. Um, and I think it's really important that we remember that all types of people came to all different parts of, of Kansas uh, for new beginnings. And uh, and and while this story is is primarily dedicated to to black people in Wichita. Um, I think it's important to realize uh, they moved other places too. The 172 black residents uh, in in Wichita in the 1880s would grow to nearly 1,400 by 1900, making almost 6% of the city's total population. Black Wichitans would play a significant role in the city's development. Um, City fathers, like Jacob McAfee, were heavily involved in real estate. Um, and they plotted northern portions of the city. Uh, In in fact, uh, the northern part of the city where a lot of the industry and and factories are uh, was called the McAfee addition because he's the one who who plotted it. Um, Black residents of Wichita were of all social classes and professions, um, and an area of Wichita uh, near where the uh, court uh, building is now um, was called Black Wall Street, along the intersections of, of, of Waco to Main Street, um, if you know where those are. Um, and this Black Wall Street was known for having many diverse businesses, um, not just factories, not just barbershops or grocery stores, but tailors and uh, blacksmiths and just a whole host of, um, of diverse business interests. The key is Black people in Wichita were successful and black people in Wichita thrived. Um, and in the 1890s, as we talked about in the introduction, when you see these Jim Crow laws start to kind of seep into Kansas, it takes time to get into Wichita. But the contagion isn't avoidable forever, and this Jim Crow contagion eventually will impact um, this this black excellence, this this black Wall Street, and and the the very diverse economic. You know, black class of Wichita pretty profoundly. Kansas, while an image of hope for its many black residents, was not immune to the wave of white backlash in the 1890s, due in part to economic woes. Parallel development was a term that became more popular during this time, um, and it was encouraged in Kansas. Um, and by the end of the 1800s the 19th century kansas had racial division similar even if it was less enshrined to the american south um and and in kansas you see efforts to limit minority voting rights job opportunities and increasingly limit um what education looks like for those for those groups racial violence in kansas never would reach the fever pitch levels Um, it did in the American South in the Lynch law period. Um, but we should realize that racialized violence did happen in, in, in Kansas and in Wichita, um, between 1861 and 1916, 42 black Kansans were lynched by white Kansans, um, There were sundown towns and counties. If you don't know what those are, I'd encourage you pull out your phone and and Google it. There's actually a a great source that you'll find where you can look and see where sundown towns were in the state you live in. Um, And it's always pretty shocking how many towns, suburbs and cities were uh, closed to black people, as the term implies, when the sun went down. Sundown towns were a reality in Kansas, including the towns of Augusta, Bel Plain, Clearwater, Derby, Hayesville, and Ma- and Mulvane, which surround Wichita, Kansas's largest city. Um, the existence, but exceptionally rare enforcement of the 1874 anti-discrimination law, led to segregation patterns um, that looked different. All around Kansas, but impacted every Black Kansan um, in their social, political, and economic lives. Labor unions, for example, were segregated. Uh, One Black Kansan recalled being barred from a public pool and only having the option of swimming in a local river. Uh, Gordon Parks, the iconic uh, photographer, recalled a childhood where he had kind of a, a dual existence between, you know, uh, idyllic life on the family farm and, uh, you know, racial segregation. Uh, he, he's quoted as saying, racial insults and brutalities whites heat upon me from my childhood. Um, there is what we would call a quote-unquote color line in Kansas. Um which is exactly what the name implies. Uh, Historian Randall Woods writes, for most white Kansans, a rigid system of Jim Crow was unnecessary. Whites were certainly anxious, however, to control the black population, providing black Kansans with a plateau of uncertainty. So even if there aren't the very classic signs of you know, this is a white water fountain than a non white water fountain, or, you know, uh, the pool is closed to black people. Now, they probably would use a, a less kind term than that. Um, those signs I'm referencing are incredibly memorable. And if you grew up in the United States or you've studied American history, those images are unavoidable. Um, however, it's important to realize Wichita and Kansas. Had similar sentiments, had similar feelings in practice, had similar situations, um, of segregation, but they never went as far to hang up the sign. You were just expected as a black person to, to know I'm not welcome in this city park, um, Despite residential isolation and informal social segregation, Black Wichitans established notable institutions from their own diverse Black business district around Waco and Main Streets, as well as a string of Black newspapers and other regular publications. I'm going to read these. Kansas Globe, The People's Elevator, The Negro Star, The Wichita Times, and the one that continues to today, The Community Voice. These publications provided black Wichitans a voice and kept their respective readerships current on black activism and expression around the country. The Negro Star, which ran from the turn of the century to the 1950s, was not shy to investigate and condemn those responsible for regional terror against black people. They would document, for example, the uh, 1921 Tulsa Massacre um, and the destruction of of what the black community called, quote unquote, Little Africa. Um, And they went line for line, day for day, documenting the, here's a quote, fiendish mob actuated by jealousy and race hatred, which sought to wipe out the Negroes and their section of the city. Um, Some of these Tulsa residents who would flee Tulsa uh, following this massacre of of, of Black Wall Street there would settle in in Wichita. Um, These news publications, as well as key Black churches, uh, were set in the beating heart of Black Wichita, that northeastern wing of the city we were talking about. Um, Some of these key churches include St. Paul um, AME, Tabernacle Baptist and Calvary Baptist, um, and and these churches provided Black Wichitans with a kind of a cultural hub. A, a it's more than just a spiritual foundation, if that makes sense. Um, I'd encourage you to ask your your history teacher um, about you know the history of the Black Church, and and for many Black people. Um, your spiritual life is really, really essential. And not just because you, you believe or don't believe, but because historically back in the, the, the antebellum period, church was one of the few places where black people could organize together. Um, it was in many cases outlawed, uh, in other, other situations. For that reason, the black church all around the United States has always been really key. Um, and, and you see that also happening in, in Wichita, Wichita, had far too many black residents for the city to pursue ordinances, uh, that you would find in the American South, uh, or you would find in smaller, more white towns. Um, there, it's not fair to say there were, you know, a, a huge amount of black people in Wichita, but compared to the rest of Kansas, there was, um, so even if you don't see, you know, lost law, state laws and, and city laws and local laws, um, that are promoting segregation, you do see the city isolate its black residents into that northeastern wing of the city um, along Water Street. For those of you who live in Kansas, Um, the area would essentially become the designated region for, for black Wichitans. And you can make an argument that that has continued until today. A 1920 census shows that the fourth ward contained 14.9 14.9% of the total city population, but two-thirds of that population were Black. Um, a 1937 Homeowners Loan Corporation residential map, uh, we call that HOLC for short, um, shows and reflects this racial housing isolation. Um, and these are what they call redlining maps. And so if you don't know what I'm talking about, I encourage you just to type in um, you know the the city or town you live in a uh, redlining map and you'll see what I'm popping up uh, for those of you who want to follow along for Wichita uh, type in 1937 Wichita uh redlining map and and one will come up um but essentially um this is a a branch of the federal government um and and they work with um you know real estate groups and and other things like that other other you know uh uh home building associations and they would go town to town, city for city around the United States and they would rank neighborhoods. Um, however, because of the era they were doing this and this would have started during, uh, during the new deal um, pre uh, pre world war two, um, their cultural biases influenced how they ranked and how they plotted these maps. And so because of that, as you can see with this this map of Wichita areas that contain minorities are graded down significantly areas that are near minorities are you know they're not graded down the lowest but they're they're not the highest either they're they're kind of like in the middle a little bit um they essentially would offer a through d rankings okay d being the worst um, a being the best. And for those of you who are who are Wichita natives, I'd encourage you to look at this map because you'll very quickly realize they have made the black region of Wichita a D. Um, they've given it the lowest rating possible. If you find the neighborhoods of College Hill or Crown Heights or um, parts of, of Riverside, um, you'll see they have A and B rankings, uh, the best. Those areas were at the time extremely white and even now are, are overwhelmingly white. Um, so it's fair to say that how these neighborhoods were graded influenced uh, uh, the development of the city. Um, I wanna mention before we move on past these redlining maps, um, it's not just like it's a a, a, a diss, if you will. Um, it's not like it's just disrespectful to live in a neighborhood that's been given a D. Um, Living in a quote-unquote D neighborhood has huge implications on how you grow up um, because these maps were used by city planners. Um, So, for example, they're not going to, you know, with zoning laws, put a factory in or nearby an A neighborhood, but they may be more willing to do it in a C or a D. Um, when city officials are being asked by developers, where can we put, you know, fill in the blank? Um, they're going to look at these maps to do it. So it's fair to say if you grew up in a C or a D neighborhood, and this would go around the United States as well, there's a highly higher likelihood that you grew up closer to factories, farther away from parks and grocery stores, um. It might be louder where you grew up, just like naturally walking on the street, than if you were, you know, a few miles away in a in an A or a B neighborhood. So, point being, these neighborhoods, these this predominantly black neighborhood of, of Wichita, was given lower rankings, and because of that, um, it impacted the people who lived there. When those people went on to move or sell their houses, um, they could sell their houses for less because. It was in a quote-unquote D neighborhood, okay? And you do see in Wichita, and this is also around the United States, you see housing covenants um, that restricted um, certain neighborhoods uh, from, you know, black owners, you know? So I would encourage you, if you own a house uh, and you know it's kind of an older house, um, look to see if there's a housing covenant in it because it's very possible. You might have a... a uh, a paragraph in there that says you cannot sell this house to a to a non-white resident, um, and those certainly uh, existed in in Wichita. Robert Newby, uh, a black activist, would write in the South everything was marked white or black. In Wichita, you just knew. Uh, in 1908, Mary Jones, a, a black woman, sued Wonderland Park, a local amusement park, for f- denial of entry because of her race. Uh, one source I read when I was creating this described Wichita as having uh, more in common with cities of the ex-Confederacy uh, than the American North when looking at public segregation. Um, we're talking about segregated city places like parks, golf clubs, pools, restaurants, banks. We're talking about separate hospital wings. Um at one point in the early 1960s, black activists, um, a group of women realized that they all had been scheduled for the same day, uh, by their dentist, um, who informally called it, you know, the black day. Um, and so to get back at him, they all canceled their appointment. Um, and, uh, only when he let them go on different days, did they reschedule. Um, Theaters would often be segregated and only allow black people in the balconies. Um, A 1960 census of Wichita showed that 65% of non-whites held unskilled jobs compared to 9% of white Wichitans. 50% of black families fell below the poverty line. Um, Looking at people who are in like manager jobs, you know, administration jobs, the white numbers were 50%. um, The black numbers were 26 Um, as the city expanded, segregation would expand with it. Um, so the neighborhood of Plainview, uh, Plainview, which was built during World War II to, um, house people who, who were building planes during, during World War II. Um, uh, but by the way, quick, quick derail, the, the housing was supposed to be temporary and, and for the most part, it's, it's still there today. Um, but as that kind of mini city exploded, um, there was a segregated wing for black people, uh. Black people homes. Uh, a uh, another another uh, Wichitan who who wrote a memoir uh, published earlier uh, this year wrote um, that as a child he wasn't exposed to uh, to white Wichitans um, and and he he says that admittedly there was a time where I wasn't sure what a white person looked like, um, which I think in modern years is just incredibly shocking. Culturally and socially, Wichita reflected the enduring legacy of racism and segregation. Wichita newspapers in the early 20th century would warn white residents of walking in northeastern Wichita after dark. The Wichita Eagle reprinted a story insisting that lynch law might be needed if, quote, burly Negroes, close quote, were found with white women. The 1940 edition of The Green Book, a publication to aid black travelers, listed only one restaurant and one lodging safe for Blacks in Wichita, the Oklahoma House and the Oklahoma Cafe located on 1517 North Main. Now, for those of you who were listening, if you put that into your Google Maps, you will notice it is precisely in that part of North East Wichita, quote-unquote Black Wichita. Racial hate groups such as the KKK reached nearly six. 60,000 Kansas members in 1920 with 6,000 Klan members in Wichita. Um, Guys, that means there were more people in the Klan in Wichita than there were Black people. At the time, there were only 5,600 Black residents. In 1925, the Negro team, the Wichita Monrovians, defeated the Klan team 10-8 to in a peaceful game. Uh, There's a funny story about this. Um the clan team I believe they were clan team number 6 um they uh, essentially were so sure they were going to destroy this this all black baseball team um, that when they lost they like did not know what to do with themselves but it was a, it was a peaceful affair um it's fair to say though that relationships with hate groups and and black witches were not always this peaceful uh Dwayne Nelson, a black man who bought a home in an all white neighborhood north of 13th Street, um, which was kind of past the quote unquote racial boundary line, had his home rigged with dynamite and blown up by the Klan. Uh, Chester Lewis, who we will spend a lot of time talking about in this series, the tireless civil rights lawyer and and activist. Uh, He was long time the the head of the uh, NAACP here in Wichita. Um. When he and his wife bought a home uh, in, a, in a mostly white neighborhood, um, the realtor assumed that his wife was the maid. And uh, they had to take a white couple to buy the home for them. And then the white couple later deeded the, the house to them. Um, the Klan would actually target this this home of Chester Lewis several times during the civil rights movement um, and they would like blow up his mailbox for example, they lit a cross, uh, they, they burnt a, a cross on, on his lawn uh, one evening as well A successful black architect uh, and the descendant of the city father we mentioned, Jacob McAfee was told by a loan officer when attempting to buy a home in a white neighborhood that the formula used for black purchasers automatically reduced $60 a month from the family income to account for liquor and cigarettes. Neither Charles or his wife drank or smoked, but it was just assumed that's what black people did in Wichita. Um, in 1920 there was a religious and social group called the defenders of christian faith and they dedicated themselves to maintaining racial segregation besides anti-semitism and anti-communism um wichita those of you who live here know we've always had a, a long history of of conservative politics um and i do think we should mention um that we've been very pro-business, but some of those pro-business people uh, haven't always been extremely accepting of of, of change or or diversity. Um, so Fred Koch of, of Coke Industries or Robert Love, who ran the uh, Love Box Company, were active participants in the John Birch Society, which is a, a far right-wing group known for their fringe anti-communism in this era. And they considered civil rights leaders to be communists. Um, and uh, you know, the, the the leader Robert Welch of the John Birch Society um, declared in 1965 that the organization's most important mission yet was to quote fully expose the civil rights fraud close quote um, and he would include Martin Luther King as as one of the people the group needed to target. Um, Robert Love, uh, the 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 Wichita businessman, was on the national board, and Wichita had hundreds of members of these John Birchers, um, and so many, in fact, that that the city at one time had a John Bircher bookstore. Wichita's centers of black expression would be disrupted several times in the fifties and sixties. Um, first in the 1950s, when a new county courthouse was erected in the center of the black business district, destroying many of, of black wall street businesses, uh, destroying the all black Douglas elementary, um, St. Paul AME and Tabernacle Baptist. Um, now Calvary Baptist, kind of the other main black church we talked about, um, is still around today, um, and it's been converted to the Kansas African American Museum, which I would strongly recommend anybody in the area to to visit. Um, we should mention, you know, that there's court building around there, um, there's administrative buildings, there's also the Cedric County Jail, um, and this was built right in the heart of of Black Wall Street in Wichita, and some of the businesses were able to move. Uh, many of them, many of them, never recovered. Um, the black community of Wichita would shift north during this period to around McAdams Park, pushing the community closer to the industrial hub of the city, which includes stockyards, refineries, packing plants. Um, and this this area of Wichita would earn a name, uh, not the quote-unquote ghetto that I grew up hearing, but um, the Chitlin Curtain. Um, this curtain would would over time become a little bit more like a wall. And in 1965, the um, it was announced that Interstate Highway One Thirty Five would 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 be created, which severed Black Wichita yet again um, and disrupted some of these black businesses that had moved uh, and condemned many black houses. We're talking about ninety four black families to fourteen white families. Um, the mostly black Skinner Elementary was uh, was destroyed to build the highway. Um, that same year. 1965, a Boeing refueler uh, plane, the KC 135, um, which had taken off from the nearby McConnell Air Force Base, uh, crashed into the heart of of kind of the new hub of of Black Wichita um, at the intersections of 20th and Pyatt, killing all seven of the crew members and 23 residents, half of which were, it's hard to say, children under the age of, of 12. Um, the 31,000 gallons of jet fuel sprayed over the, the mostly black residents and houses, um, were essentially similar to napalm. It's like a jellied consistency. Um, and many of the homes, dozens, uh, uh in the area that it landed in, uh, burned. Um, the black community was in shock. Uh, in fact, this is, I believe the, the, deadliest uh plane crash in in kansas history um and many of these black families were were left homeless um and rebuilding efforts were were kind of limited um and and they reflected the segregation patterns um many of these black people who you know may have been entitled to you know an insurance claim uh didn't file one because they had a history of of not trusting you know somebody knocking on your door and saying, Hey, you should, you should sign this thing. Um, Since 1965, and I'd say it continues today. There are rumors that this plane went down to, you know, purposely hit black Wichita to a source I ran across said uh, to quote, kill black folks, uh, close quote um or at least to avoid uh, affluent white neighborhoods like you know College Hill or or Riverside um i want to point out there's, there's no evidence of of it being targeted at at black wichita um the people flying the plane were were not native to wichita they had no reason to know about you know wichita's segreg segregatory uh, housing patterns um but i do think we should realize that, that racial segregation plays a role in in this tragedy um H.W. Carter writes that racial segregation made this an African-American disaster, not the pilots. Despite residential and cultural discrimination, Black Wichitans persisted and, when possible, resisted. In response to growing anti-Black sentiment in 1910, a Wellington Black man wrote the Kansas governor to remind him that Black Americans built the railroads and shed, quote-unquote, buckets of blood in the American Civil War. H.F. Sims, the publisher of The Negro Star, um, would found the Wichita chapter of the NAACP in 1919, which would really be instrumental uh, in Black activism in Wichita uh, from then uh, to now. Um, Sims would, would be the first president. Uh, eventually, Vivian Parks would take over. And finally, in 1956, um, a guy who will be really essential to this story, Chester Lewis, uh, would take over as, as president. Under Lewis's leadership, the Wichita NAACP would institute successful don't shop where you can't work campaigns to boycott boycott stores that did not hire black Wichitans, um, as well as a, a fury of civil rights suits that challenged racial discrimination in the workplace. Uh, and, and they would file suits against Boeing, against Cessna, uh, Southwestern Bell Telephone Company, uh, and the Santa Fe Railroad. Um, in addition to public places, uh, housing, and, and eventually the, the focus of this topic, of uh, this, this story, uh, Wichita schools. It would be Chester Lewis and a dozen other activists, parents and students, officials and community members who would slowly chip away at another enduring element of segregation in Wichita, the racial separation in Wichita schools. Chester Lewis, acting as legal counsel, would support the Wichita NAACP Youth Council in what became the first successful student-led sit-in in in the United States, the Dockham Drugstore Sit-In of 1958. This action, we should mention, was not endorsed by the national NAACP, and it deviated from the the national organization's litigation-first mindset um, and in fact, the, the the national organization refused to acknowledge its success uh, while praising um, sit-in efforts in Oklahoma City, for example, which started less than a week after Wichita, meaning directly inspired by Wichita's successful sit-in. Now we should mention, uh, for those of you listening, maybe you don't know what a, what a sit-in is, a sit-in is a tactic that became very successful in in the civil rights movement of the 1960s. Um, most of us think about um, kind of uh, sit-ins from, from North Carolina, 1960 onward, but essentially it's this non-violent technique that we are going to go into this segregated space where Black people are not allowed. Um, so Oftentimes, uh, like a restaurant, you know, um, in this case, it was a drugstore. Uh, and drugstores at this time, you could order food and, and like a Coke or something. And we're going to peacefully and nicely walk into this white space and we're going to ask to be served. We're going to try to order something, right? Um, when they yell at us and tell us to get out, when they call us names, we're not going to fight back, but we're not going to leave either. We're going to sit there peacefully representing our community the best we possibly can and come back day after day, hour after hour, until you, you know, the, the, the most likely white owner decide to, to treat us like a human being. Um, and this is a tactic that really would, would spread, you know, by a lot of students across the, the America, across the, the nation, not just the American South. And we should realize this started in Wichita, Kansas at, uh, a drugstore called Dockum. Dockum was a, uh, a chain of drugstores in, in Wichita. I think there were nine in Wichita at the time. Um, and Dockum was was part of a larger chain in Kansas called the Rixel chain, um, which was the largest drugstore chain in Kansas. Um, so as this youth council of the NAACP organized it, they were taking on not just one drugstore. They were taking on the whole chain. Here's the story. Several sit-in attempts by high school and college students associated with the Youth Council had failed before. Pretense Lewis of Wichita North High School had tried twice in 1956, um, first at Hollenbaugh's Drugstore and later at Randall's Drugstore on graduation night, with future University of Kansas and Kansas City Chief running back Curtis McClinton Jr., After the owner had turned off the power and threatened to call the police, both youth abandoned their attempt to order ice cream. A new organized effort by youth council leaders Ronald Walters and Carol Parks in 1958 targeted one of nine Wichita Dockham drugstore locations, a business that had been in Wichita for over 50 years and was part of the largest drugstore chain in Kansas. The youths, inspired by a successful effort at UCLA to, inter- to, des- to desegregate the University Dining Hall, started meeting in the basement of a Roman Catholic Church with the blessing of Wichita Bishop Mark Carroll and of course uh, that is uh, the Bishop uh, uh, that that Bishop Carroll the Catholic High School here in Wichita is is named for the message of the campaign was simple serve the black students food or drink or prepare for a sustained resistance that would likely damage business and damage the drugstore's reputation. After recruiting around 20 students from local universities and near and the nearby East High School, the Youth Council prepared a sustained sit-in campaign, preparing their recruits for nonviolent activism in the face of white resistance. Um, they actually would reuse um, some literature that had been used um, by Martin Luther King's group, the the Southern Christian Leadership Conference, or uh, we call them the SCLC sometimes, um, and and the SCLC had made these comic books, these like pamphlet comic books um, that basically taught what nonviolent activism was all about. Um, about, you know, hey, if, if you are yelled at, how are you going to react? If you are pushed, how are you going to react? If you're bitten by a police dog, how are you going to react, right? And the idea is every time someone mistreats you because of the color of your skin, you keep doing the right thing because when you do that, and the press shows up, the media shows up, the cameras show up. All the world sees is you doing the right thing and the white oppressor oppressing you. Um, and and that's really kind of the 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 sentiment that Ronald Walters and and uh, and and Parks really wanted to to bring to this um, to this sit-in movement. And and they were successful in doing so. Here we go. The students organized partnerships and quietly attempted to order day by day. Tension building over the coming days as white and black groups and over Cavalier police with Billy clubs threatened to intercept the sit-in attempts. Little media coverage was provided. Um, there were a, 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 there's a very brief article that was published in, uh, the, the Wichita beacon, one of the, the city's two major newspapers, um, that, that really just said that, uh, that, The students were well-dressed and orderly. Um, The Wichita Eagle, the other major newspaper, didn't talk about the sit-in, but they did run a full-page advertisement uh, the week that the sit-in started um, supporting Dockham. Uh, Basically, Dockham just reminding the city that um, they'd been serving the community for over 50 years so supporting uh, the people uh, excluding excluding black people um, there is however a black newspaper the Enlightener uh, who who published a single photo of uh, of the, the youth in action um, and if you google Dockham City drugstore sit-in um, the photo of them at the the lunch counter is the photo from the Enlightener, which is very cool. it's the only photo we know um, from the sit-in itself that that exists. Um, the sit-in effort would last for three weeks, and finally, on August 10th, the store manager, Wayne Williams, entered the location and instructed his employees to serve the use, saying, quote, serve them, I'm losing too much money, close quote. On the 11th, a press conference revealed the student's success had resulted in the desegregation of the entire Rexall chain, the largest drugstore in Kansas, now pledged to, quote, serve all people without regard to race, creed, or color, close quote. This victory would be monumental, but far from the conclusion. Efforts to desegregate and integrate would have to be fought for step-by-step. Wichita public schools and Wichita children in them would have to often be the battleground in this war of attrition. Um, That's where we're going to stop for this first part. Um, What we'll talk about next time is the history of of Wichita's public schools, starting way back from its year of incorporation, 1870. And as we'll see, at the beginning, Wichita did not segregate its schools, but very quickly, when this contagion of Jim Crow spread, it moved that direction. Um, And ultimately, we move that direction until the 1970s, you know, 17 years after Brown versus Board said separate schools were inherently unequal. Thank you for listening. This has been Integration ICT, uh, the battle for school integration in Wichita, Kansas.